it's possible to like Google as a search tool and at the same time deplore its surveillance. And if you know enough about technology, you understand that, you know, no one came down off a mountain with two stone tablets and said, Larry, Sergey, stop rotating thine log files and start mining them for actionable market intelligence. That, you know, it was a choice. Hello everyone, my name is Stephen Parton and you're listening to The Feedback Loop on Singularity Radio, where we keep you up to date on the latest technological trends and how they're impacting the transformation of consciousness and culture. This week my guest is science fiction author and activist Cory Doctorow, who has such an extensive and prolific background that I think I'm just going to let him describe to you what he does at the top of this podcast. But what I will say for now is that whether you agree with him or not, Corey has an incredible clarity of insight that brings together a very wide variety of topics. And luckily for us, he also has the ability to articulate those insights. Now, on that note, some of the topics we explore in this episode include the exploration of science fiction's impact on the world, how we balance the cost of technological solutions and progress, the failures of blockchain, peak indifference, the gig economy, climate change, digital IDs, and so much more. With all that we cover in this episode, I'm not going to waste any more time trying to tell you about it, so let's just jump into it. Everyone, please welcome to the feedback loop, Corey Doctorow. And as always, of course, there's cliche questions to get out of the way, so I'm going to start with the cliche question. I think it's a good introduction, but how would you describe your work and kind of what you do? Um, you know, it's a tough question and, and, and probably harder than it should be, but I, you know, I, I'm a British citizen. Uh, I married uh, my wife who is British and I lived in London and in the period between we got married and when I got citizenship, I still had to fill in a landing card every time I came into the country. And there's like a little one centimeter blank for occupation. And I always really struggled with what to put in that one centimeter blank. Um, I'm a, a science fiction novelist, uh, and I've written more than 20 books now, and I've won a lot of awards, and I'm a New York Times bestseller, and my books are translated and pretty widely distributed. And I'm an activist, and I work with the Electronic Frontier Foundation, and I've worked with them for about 20 years. They're based in San Francisco. I currently live in Los Angeles. And I am a kind of fake academic. I'm a visiting professor of computer science at the Open University who were kind enough to give me an honorary doctorate in computer science. And I'm a visiting professor of practice of library science at UNC. And I'm a research affiliate at the MIT Media Lab. And I'm a blogger. So I, again, for about 20 years, have been writing a daily blog. For most of that time, it was uh, writing on Boing Boing, which is a very popular blog, one of the original ones that I helped found and continue to own part of. Uh, about a year and a half ago, I left and started my own, which is called Pluralistic.net. And I have written literally tens of thousands of blog posts. And then I'm a journalist. And some of that journalism is on blogs, and some of it is for newspapers. And I have been a columnist for The Guardian, and I write columns for a bunch of other magazines and websites and whatnot. So a little of everything. Yeah. And how does all of that work and experience kind of come together in the themes of your books? Because it's been said, you know, that creatives, especially storytellers, are often just trying to tell the same story in an attempt to kind of circle the drain or heighten the resolution of a specific idea that's really near and dear to them. Yeah, I prefer to think of like uh, range finding on the target to circling on the drain, <laughs> circling the drain. It doesn't um, sound as good. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, look, I mean, I think the job of a science fiction writer and the job of an activist are related in that, uh, you know, the science fiction writer, if they're any good at their job, is not just concerned with how the gadget works, but uh, who uses the gadget and who it works for and who it does something to. Uh, and about reframing those relations, reimagining how those relations can work. And that's really the foundational job of an activist, right? It's to, to challenge the idea that there's only one way to use the gadget uh, and to assert that we can have um, a more equitable distribution of the benefits of automation and technology. And that 
you know, the parts of technology that we don't like are not inevitable. You know, um, you, it's possible to like Google as a search tool and at the same time deplore its surveillance. And if you know enough about technology, you understand that, you know, no one came down off a mountain with two stone tablets and said, Larry, Sergey, stop rotating thine log files and start mining them for actionable market intelligence. That, you know, it was a choice that these are superable. You can sunder them and then you can make something new out of them uh, that, that operates on different social relations. And, you know, journalism is in part about exploring how those relations fit together. And, and blogging um, is the way to organize all of the thoughts. So blogging is, for me, how I take all the fragmentary ideas that come across my transom from, you know, discussions with other people and books and articles and websites and RSS feeds and whatnot. And rather than just make a bookmark or a note to myself that I won't be able to make heads nor tails of later, I try to describe what seemed important about it to a notional audience of strangers. And in so doing, I make sure that I clarify my own understanding. And, and more importantly, I, I lodge it in my memory and in a database. So it's kind of a, a belt and suspenders there where it's easier to bring it to mind. And then the specifics are really easy to call up because it's in this, in this annotated database that my readers have added comments to and so on. And what this does is it kind of turns my subconscious into like a um, super saturated solution of fragmentary story ideas and article ideas and so on. And every now and again, you know, a couple of those little uh, uh, fragments will, will glom together and they'll nucleate. And then out of it crystallizes, you know, whole novels and short stories and essays and nonfiction books and so on. So it's a very powerful method. Yeah. And do you, then do you feel a real sense of duty, I guess, then as a writer? And do you think, I guess, other science fiction writers should feel that same duty in terms of what uh, power they have over driving the conversation and, and giving people alternative realities to consider? Like, is there a real impact here that you think science fiction plays in how the world is shaped? Yes, but I want to preface this by saying that the first job of an artist is to make a good piece of art. That's an art that a uh, piece of art that um, takes a numinous and irreducible complex emotion that the artist has in their own head and puts some facsimile of it into the audience member's head by whatever intermediary mean, be it a, a painting or a novel or a song or whatever. And so that's, that's the first job. It's gotta be, it's gotta be good art. It's gotta convey something complex and, and chewy and interesting by way of a kind of emotional and aesthetic uh, approach. Um, and I, I think that, you know, science fiction is part of what fuels the uh, availability heuristic, the term out of behavioral economics or the intuition pump from Daniel Denning, that this idea that if you mentally rehearse what is uh, what you think might happen in some unlikely situation, that when the situation arises, it's much easier to reach to that as the explanation and the organizing framework for your response. And so, you know, if you grew up in Toronto like me, probably your your dad or someone took you out to a, a parking lot early on a Sunday morning when it was frozen over and taught you how to steer into an ice skid. And you, you know, drove around and you just practiced so that when you actually hit black ice on the highway at 100 kilometers an hour, you wouldn't steer against the skid and spin out. Um, that kind of rehearsal kind of fuels what we do in moments of extremis. And, you know, I think that even in the best of times, emergencies crop up. You know, I don't think it makes you a pessimist to say that things will sometimes go wrong. I think that just makes you an <laughs> asshole, right? Yeah. If, if, you, if you say that, you know, the Titanic doesn't need lifeboats because it's unsinkable, that's not optimism, right? It's just, it's just dereliction of duty. And so even at the best of times, there will be crises. And if we teach people through our narratives that when crisis arises, you know, your, your neighbor is going to turn on you and eat you, um, that, you know, solidarity goes out the window and we just run around stabbing each other or whatever, then people will expect it. And they'll also, you know, conceivably cause it to happen that, you know, if you, if you believe your neighbor is coming over after the disaster strikes with a covered dish, then maybe you'll like break out the meat that's spoiling in the freezer and barbecue it and offer it to them. Uh, but if you think they're coming over with a shotgun, then the kind of uh, optimal game theoretical outcome is for you to go over there with your shotgun first. 
And so, you know, the beliefs that science fiction uh, infuses into our understanding of extremists, uh, those are those those are are heavy, right? They they actually like have some relationship to what does happen in emergencies, and of course, we're not living in good times. We're living in in extremely fraught times, thanks to the climate emergency, which will have a lot of sub emergencies, and you know we are going to see lots more zoonotic plagues, and we're going to see refugee crises and hurricanes and floods and fires and so on. And like, if we are convinced that when each of these befall us, that our neighbors are uh, not the way that we solve them, but the problem, the real problem, the actual like, the 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 real uh, significant thing that we need to worry about, not the fire, but the neighbor who comes over to loot your house while it's burning, uh, then you know we won't we won't get clear of that emergency the, those emergencies will will take us and will fall at the first hurdle at the same time though i think that you know so many of our policy debates right now turn on highly technical and abstract questions about privacy personal control technological self-determination networked activities and communities uh and so on and that um one of the things that science fiction can be is news you can use. It can be a way to show people that the parts of the technology that are immiserating them are not inevitable, and that the parts of the technology that they think might liberate them can in fact be wielded in that way. They can be emancipatory, and it can create a kind of architect's rendering, an emotional fly-through of what it would feel like if we reordered the social relations of our technology and in so doing, it can inspire people to actually take on that project. One, one of the concepts that I really loved in your work that I think just addresses a lot of these topics that you're touching on here was in Walk Away. And, and actually, I believe it was a description you gave about what the very term Walk Away is meant to mean or where it came from. Do you remember, recall uh, uh, such a description? That was four books ago, dude. I do not recall that description. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's that's fair enough. I think I think the way you talked about it was really just the fact that you can take automated mechanisms to create fully automated luxury communism that can like babysit you rather than um, and it can protect you against weirdos. I think you said who come along and try to like power trip and steal everything, and and you can walk away from those weirdos and say, okay, fine, we'll just make another fully automated uh, luxury communistic uh, area over here instead. Well, I mean, the, the I do know what passage you're talking about now. And, you know, in part, the kind of impetus for walk away was to build on on some of the work that Yochai Benkler did in describing uh, what the Internet is for and how it works. Benkler wrote a, a really amazing book called uh, The Wealth of Networks uh, and, a, and a seminal essay called Kosa's Penguin about the way that um, uh, digital technology lowers the transaction costs. And transaction costs, they're kind of the, the, the secret tax that we pay for everything that we do together, right? Like it's the, it's the fact that if you're all at an event and you wanna to go to dinner, you understand kind of intuitively that every person you add to the dinner table might, might make the dinner more fun, but it's gonna add an extra 15 minutes to figuring out where you're gonna eat because of the just the transaction costs of finding a restaurant that everyone's happy to eat at. And, um, you know, transaction costs are, are in the, the thinking of Ronald Coase, who won the Nobel Prize for a paper about this in the 30s called The Theory of the Firm. Transaction costs are why we build institutions, right? The reason we have corporations and churches and the mafia and street gangs and uh, um, bowling leagues and factories and so on is because if you want to do more than one human can do which is to say if you want to do something superhuman you need to figure out some way to coordinate things you know if you and i sit down to knit a sweater and uh one of us doesn't get the memo and is unknitting the sweater the other one is knitting then we don't end up with a sweater and so some of the time that we might spend knitting we have to spend having a meeting about how we're going to knit instead and what the internet does is it radically lowers transaction costs. So if you think about something like Wikipedia, you know, you don't have to agree on how Wikipedia is, uh, on which uh, articles are gonna be written or who's gonna edit them or what the schedule for editing them is gonna be. You don't have to know a priori that everyone who edits them is, is qualified to edit um, and, and so on. 
And Wikipedia as an institution, if you think about the Wikimedia Foundation and all the official and quasi-official roles, it's like a really, really ambitious like little league, right? Or maybe maybe triple A ball league compared to say the Encyclopedia Britannica, which is, you know, multiple uh, towering buildings full of people who have to very tightly coordinate their labor and have to have a lot of meetings, right? Wikipedia is not free of meetings. People, people in Wikipedia land do spend a lot of time arguing with each other about how they're going to edit Wikipedia. But compared to the Britannica, it's, it's kind of a low transaction cost paradise. And so I've often thought that if you want to imagine what um, a, a networked utopia might look like, Imagine taking these institutions that we have, you know, not because we like fetishize the institution. I mean, some people might really like kind of LARPing bureaucracy, but all these institutions that mostly we, we keep around as a necessary evil, you know, we, we all want to have a library. And so we have to have a library board and, you know, a supervisor and a page and a whatever, um, as opposed to just like throwing some books in a room and then having a library magically appear out of it. And imagine that that we get rid of those institutions and that we are able to build things on the same order of complexity as say GNU Linux or Wikipedia, but that are physical. So imagine like a space program or a high rise, a luxury tower built on those same principles. And that's kind of what I tried to embody there. And the idea is that they're doing it with waste, with things that are otherwise not well captured by the system. So things that are that are thought of really as garbage, which, you know, is, is again, very analogous to things like code fragments that today we might call um, pull requests for for uh, core Linux utility or, uh, you know, updates to a Wikipedia post. This stuff that used to be indistinguishable from garbage can be kind of shaped into uh, a great and towering edifice. And the garbage that they're working with in the novel is literally this stuff left behind on the blighted lands that have been burned over by the climate emergency. And there is as much blighted poisoned land as you could possibly want. There's a great surplus of it. And so they go off and they, they you know, use drones to take an inventory of the material that's available from the blighted lands. It, it turns that inventory into a plan for a building. They build the building and then if some you know weird plutocrat shows up and says that's my poison dirt they can just go somewhere else and get some more garbage and build something else beautiful on someone else's poison dirt do you think we're going to be moving in the direction of something that's like more fully automated or do you think that's not something that's possible i mean we have blockchain and automation and things like basic income all uh, mixing together right now in the conversation where do you think that's taking us well, I mean, the novel is an, it's a novel, it's a parable, not a, not a roadmap or a blueprint. Mm -hmm. And many of the things that are in that novel are also a warning. So I wouldn't say that it's, you know, it's, it's not a, it's not an Ayn Rand novel. You're not supposed to go and make it happen. You're supposed to uh, read it and think about, about what it says about what's possible and, and what's desirable and make up your own mind, uh, as opposed to, you know, forming a weird cult of personality around a sociopath. Uh, in terms of things like blockchain um, and UBI, I am rather skeptical of those. Uh, I think that, um, you know, I, well, it's a kind of a long story. And really, it's an argument that I make in uh, not my next novel, but the one that comes after a, a book called The Lost Cause that's a post Green New Deal uh, utopian novel about truth and reconciliation with white nationalist militias after a successful climate transition. And you know, it, it it my my problems with blockchain and and with UBI are myriad, but they revolve around a couple of facts. One of which I think is relatively uncontroversial, and the other one may be more controversial. And the the uncontroversial idea is that the climate emergency means that we are a very 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 long way away from um, a world in which people don't need to work anymore. Uh, that um, you know we have projects on our horizon like we're probably going to have to relocate every coastal city in the world 20 kilometers inland and that's probably going to take 300 years um, now that's not to say that we will all work every hour that god sends for the next 300 years uh, in fact you know part of the nature of the climate emergency is that um, it makes sense to not work when renewables are not uh, available to you that it, it's actually kind of a if your goal is to 
remediate the climate emergency and safeguard the preservation of our species and civilization, the best thing you can do when the wind isn't blowing or the sun isn't shining is to just like have a party and play board games and, and wait for the renewables to come back on to reduce the, the load on the grid. And so, you know, we already do a lot of this in uh, under market conditions, like uh, most aluminum smelting is done only when there's um, uh, uh, a renewable source, like usually water, it's usually hydroelectric that um, is producing, even though demand isn't there for it anymore, uh, or demand has fallen below the production level, and you just turn on the aluminum smelter. Um, you know, we know that we need a certain amount of aluminum in our in our world, in our economy. It doesn't really matter when we smelt it, so long as it gets smelted. And it's super energy intensive to do it. So you just do it when the energy is free. Um, of course, that's not really happening now because all of that excess energy has been bought up to solve Sudoku problems for blockchain. Um, and and so that's um that's you know one serious problem with with this idea that uh, we're going to have uh, you know luxury communism. It it may be a world in which leisure and work are reoriented and rebalanced, in which there's more leisure than we have now. But we are a very long way away from automating it. And if we do automate some part of it, if robots can do some of this. That's just more work for us to do on the rest of it. You know, we're not just going to be relocating every coastal city 20 kilometers inland. We're also going to be dealing with, you know, hundreds of millions, if not billions of, of um, traumatized climate refugees. Uh, and we're going to see whole cities just wiped off the map, um, including ones that we are in the middle of relocating uh, by, by catastrophic weather events. And so, you know, that's not a world in which, like, we can all down tools and just chill out, right? There's a lot of work left to do before before we get anywhere near there and so i'm i'm that that part of the vision i think is not really where where i am um, thinking in terms of blockchain more generally so there's a couple of problems with blockchain i think and the first uh is related to what we think money is uh and i will put my hand up and say that i'm a modern monetary theory person which is to say that i think um Money has value because states uh, levy taxes in it, that uh, you have a, 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 an authority with coercive power that says you need a certain number of tokens at the end of the year or you'll be in trouble. And um, then they buy stuff using those tokens and everybody will buy things from the people who uh, those tokens were given to because they all need the tokens. And in fact, this, this is pretty clearly where money does come from. And none of this looks like blockchain, right? Uh, you know, Bitcoin uh, and, and cryptocurrencies are, are not money in any of the senses that we think of them. They, they're, not so, they're not the product of a sovereign currency issuer. They're not used to orient productive capacity to something that's democratically accountable. They're a terrible medium of exchange because they're so volatile. They're a terrible store of value because they're so volatile. Um, they, they are primarily just speculative assets. And to the extent that they are private, and you know, I think the privacy of, of most cryptocurrencies, with a few exceptions, has been grossly overstated, as, as people who try to do crimes with, with cryptocurrency keep finding out, um, because you know, public ledgers are public, uh, that the, the privacy um, uh, part of that is mostly used not to um, allow downtrodden people to escape financial censorship. It's mostly used to allow um, uh, corrupt rich people to hide their money and you know to the extent that there's anything like a course of authority that demands that you have a certain amount of blockchain money periodically to settle a liability it's not states it's ransomware dudes right that's the the, the uh, an enormous amount of the demand for for bitcoin and for other cryptos is from firms that have a like a uh uh, a non-elastic need to acquire a certain number of cryptocurrency units every year to rescue their data from criminals. Uh, and then, you know, there's the whole problem of the climate issue and proof of work as this grossly wasteful thing. And proof of stake is something that is on the one hand been a pie in the sky for as long as I've been talking about cryptocurrency, which is a long time. And on the other hand, even if it works, uh, puts the richest people in control of the currency. So it's not really a decentralization move. I realize is a very long answer, but it's a it's a very big question. Well, yeah, and to, to the point you were getting to there a little bit, um, 
it seems one of the things we're struggling with right now is reconciling the socioeconomic issues that you alluded to that I think we can all agree are massive forces uh, influencing what's unraveling here and things like the climate emergency. And that since you were mentioning, I think it's something like Bitcoin mining takes in a day the same amount of energy that all the cars in the entire country uh, release in energy. Um, sure. Or more to the point, we currently, all of the solar uh, photovoltaic energy that has ever been brought online in the history of the world is less than the daily consumption. Like the daily output from that is less than the daily consumption for blockchain purposes. Wow. So we've consumed 100%, more than 100% of all the solar <laughs> energy being produced today to solve Sudoku problems. And to that point, then, how do we, I guess, in your mind, reconcile this deep struggle right now between fixing this climate emergency with technological solutions and being blind to the fact that technolog these technological solutions have hidden costs that are maybe equally as bad, if not worse, than the solution? Well, I mean, the thing is that blockchain doesn't have a hidden cost. It has a completely visible cost, right? The whole nature of security economics is that the total energy bill for the blockchain has to be worth at least 51% of the assets that are secured in the blockchain, or it's cheaper to steal them than it is to maintain them. And so it has been obvious since day one that the more useful blockchain becomes, the more wasteful it becomes. That is, that, is in the, that is in the security economics formula, the, the precept, the underlying accounting identity of a blockchain. Um, and so, you know, when the cost is obvious, visible, undeniable, and people continue to act like it's not there, the problem isn't that uh, we can't anticipate it. The problem is more like that Upton Sinclair quote from the 30s, that it's impossible to get someone to understand something when their paycheck depends on them not understanding it. And this idea that someday we will green the blockchain just feels like a, um, uh, it feels like bargaining, you know? Well, for now, it feels like people who say, well, it's fine that we have all this exploitative piecework, be it uh, Uber or the Mechanical Turk, because soon robots will do it. Right. It's just like a transitional state while we use people who are immiserated, abused, subject to wage theft, paid less than a living wage and and, and treated in this, you know, ghastly and undignified manner because it's it's a, an interregnum on our way to robots. And, you know, there's that quote from Humpty Dumpty in or, or from uh, the, the Red Queen in uh, Through the Looking Glass, jam yesterday, jam tomorrow, no jam today. You know, before we had money as a tool of democratically accountable states, in the future, we will have money as a tool that is sort of alive and part of these DAOs that allow us to express our collective goodwill. And in the meantime, we're just going to burn, you know, a third of the world's coal reserves to get there, but it'll be fine. Um, you know, there are, are other technological paths to making the world uh, a place where our civilization can continue. I'm just reading a great book called Electrify by Saul Griffith, who's, uh, you know, he's a, he's a hacker engineer, won a MacArthur Prize. Uh, and it's just basically a kind of, one of my favorite kind of, of technical books, actually. It's a popular engineering book, not a, not a popular science book, but like a popular engineering book. Here's how we put the parts together to within the time budget that we have and the carbon budget we have, reorient our productive capacity and it's an amazing vision it, it creates you know millions of good jobs lifts people out of poverty averts untold misery what it doesn't do is uh, it's not a lottery that allows the first people in to become billionaires right and and i think that if we're going to confront the popularity of this stuff then we would do worse than to look to the founder of dogecoin who basically said this is a lottery that people like. I was making a joke about how this is a lottery that people only get involved with because it makes people billionaires who don't actually do anything productive. Uh, and I'm now going to repudiate it because a whole bunch of people thought that this was a suggestion instead of a criticism. And now a bunch of people have become billionaires without doing anything productive. So how do we pick the path that you're finding in that book? Like, why do you think we're so blind to the path that 
you're reading about in this engineering book when it seems so much better for us, honestly, but we're so focused on this other uh, path that seems kind of self-defeating. Well, I have this theory of change I call peak indifference, which is that, you know, when you have a problem that's a long way off uh, and when it's not clear what the um, uh, causal relationship between the things that are giving rise to that problem and the uh, the 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 uh, problem itself uh, is confounded by, then it's it's very easy to be indifferent to it, particularly because it's very easy to manufacture indifference to it, right? If if you know if lighting a cigarette gave you a tumor, we never would have had tobacco cancer denial. Uh, the the space that created uh, tobacco cancer denial was the literal physical and, and temporal space between the, the cigarette and the tumors that emerged. And some of those were um, sort of organic forms of doubt, which were the, the forms of doubt where you just, it's just not easy to, to understand the underlying causal relationship. And some of them were manufactured doubt, where the fact that it's not easy to understand the, the causal relationship was exploited by firms that were making a lot of money off the fact that no one really was, was able to be certain about these relationships. But at a certain point, the indifference hit a peak, right? That there comes a point where the reality of the problem is so manifest that uh, denial is no longer possible. So, you know, when you have the stage four lung cancer, you know that your cigarettes made you sick and you no longer are able to kid yourself about it. And the problem with that kind of problem where, where cause and effect are separated by so much time and space is that the moment of peak denial can come after the moment of no return. And, and then denial can turn into nihilism. You know, if, if, if we spend 30 years arguing about crashing rhino populations, and you finally agree with me that it's a problem when there's only one rhino left in a zoo, you know, we might as well eat them and find out what he tastes like. It's not like it's going to make any difference, right? And so one of the things that fiction can do, because it is this emotional fly through, of what it might feel like to live through a different set of, you know, techno-political realities, is it can move the needle on on peak indifference. It can make the point at which people start caring happen sooner. And if it happens sooner, we might lose less when we intervene. And you know, we've already lost so much, uh, so much of of uh, the um, the the you know the the climate emergencies costs are now uh you know irreversible we're we we have a lot of you know what you might think of as stranded assets right like things that are just never going to be able to be to be used or fixed or put to rights and that's you know that's ghastly and we need to put the brakes on it and we and if we put the brakes on it now we might salvage more you know and if we yeah. don't put the brakes on it we will certainly salvage less do, do you think we're in a situation right now, and I'm, this is me just totally brainstorming here, I guess, but um, it feels like in some ways, as you're talking about this, I'm thinking a lot of what's happening in the current paradigm is people are trying to get to the top of the current paradigm, pretending that it's actually a new paradigm instead of actually creating something new. Well, it's like we've got a, we're, we've all gone to a day at the fair, right? And, and to ride on the rides, you need tickets. And, you know, at the start of the day, getting those tickets is really important. And maybe we all like squabble and we complain to our parents that, you know, our kid brother got more tickets than us. And we try to hoard our tickets and save them up. But at a certain point, you look at your watch and you're like, we're leaving the fair in 10 minutes. These tickets are, are going to be worthless. Right. And so, you know, it, it is um, a difficult mental pivot to have to make to go from putting all your energy into getting something to realizing that it's not worth anything at all. It's actually like one of the most poignant moments in fiction that I've ever uh, that I've ever read is in James Clavell's debut novel. It's a kind of uh, fictionalized memoir of his life. He was um, uh, interned at the Changi concentration camp, the death camp in Singapore uh, or Malaysia uh, in, um, in World War II. He was an RAF airman. And it's about uh, black marketeers who are doing what they can to amass the war script 
uh, war script rather that circulates in the camp. Uh, it's, it's like a fiat script that's created by the Japanese occupation authority. And the liberation of the camp, there's this moment where the guy who's the kind of anti-hero of the novel, who's uh, the most successful black marketeer of the camp, um, walks up to one of his bunkmates and says, you know, how about I give you 20 bucks to shine my shoes? And this bunkmate who's been a kind of lickspittle of his and desperate to do whatever he could to earn a couple of bucks from him says, you know, you can wipe your ass with that 20 bucks because it's worth nothing. They've liberated the camp. And it's this moment where, you know, you have all of these conflicting um, uh, emotions, right? Like this guy's incredible sense of loss that all of this money that he worked so hard to amass is now just toilet paper. And on the other hand, this incredible sense of relief that the camp has been liberated from a nightmare where tens of thousands of people were, were you know, starved to death and, and beaten to death and executed. And, and to have both of those emotions playing out on the page in this climactic moment, it's a superb, superb feeling. And, you know, I said earlier that um, I think the point of art is to take these irreducible, numinous feelings and put them into other people's heads. And those, that combination of those two emotions are conveyed so skillfully. It's like um, when you have two flavors that you just don't expect will work together, but do, you know, a little salt in the chocolate. You're like, wait a second, this shouldn't work, but it does. And I've never tasted anything quite like it. Yeah, do you feel like the current technologies as they are, or the ones that are on the near horizon, do you think like they're helping us to liberate masses from the kind of economic model that we've been talking about here? Or do you think they're really reinforcing them and kind of, you know, uh, making it easier to create things like um, Ubers and the Airbnbs and the, I guess, underpaid services that pretend to be kind of decentralized and to give power back to the person, but in reality kind of just create another kind of short leash that makes somebody work harder to get less. I think both currents are occurring at the same moment, mm. right? We are, we are currently living through both of those uh, um, forces that are, that are coming to bear on us. And in some ways they are uh, flip sides of one another. You know, the, the problem of, um, a, uh, of, of, of gig work is not just that it's a gig, it's that the gig is not owned by the workers. Um, you know, one of the things that we're seeing lots of now are uh, gig co-ops where people are, uh, you know, really uh, enjoy the parts of the, of the gig work that um, the companies that popularized it claimed would be the benefits, I think somewhat disingenuously you know, like the flexibility and so on. Um, but, you know, they, they're tired of the wage theft and the worker misclassification and they're forming cooperatives. And it turns out that it's just not that hard to clone the app, right? The apps themselves are pretty straightforward. And, you know, a lot the the overhang that the big gig companies have mean that they're probably not long for this world. You know, you look at Uber and the billions that it's burned through as uh, through a combination of, you know, subsidizing rides and uh, regulatory arbitrage and just giant amounts of money for its executives. And it can't be profitable so long as it has that overhang. Like its shareholders are still going to consider themselves in the red until that overhang is made up. Whereas if you were to just start a driver co-op tomorrow that provided all the same things that Uber did, um, you would have the all the benefits that uh, Uber uh, has carved out for itself through things like regulatory arbitrage, but you wouldn't have any of those costs. You wouldn't have to accommodate people to the very idea of, of gig taxis and so on. And, um, you know, when you add in some little technological magic, like, uh, an interoperability layer. So imagine, you know, the biggest problem of, of starting a co-op is that most drivers wouldn't have the co-op app and most riders wouldn't have the co-op app. And finding the confluence would be really hard. And so most riders would just open their, their phones and start with the Uber app rather than the co-op app because they wouldn't be able to get a car most times. But you could imagine a, a thing where if you're a driver that's running both the Uber app and the co-op app, then the rider who pages you, if they also have the co-op app, uh, they would both register like a, a, a cryptographic uh, nonce on a, um, uh, a shared drive, like a, a, a a public uh, web service 
Uh, and as soon as the two phones discovered that they both were capable of being a co-op ride, it would tear down the Uber ride, it would cancel it, and then rebuild the ride as a co-op ride. And so you could solve that, that collective action and network effect problem by making it so that any time a co-op ride is possible, the co-op ride results. And since the riders would not have to pay for the executives that um, Uber has to pay for, and the drivers would not have to uh, tip out to Uber, you could have drivers who are paid more and riders who paid less and everyone being happier. And so that's an incentive for everyone to gradually start to replace the Uber app with their own app. And, and you know, that's a much better future. I mean, that's leaving aside the, the much more important question that, um, you know, Uber can't solve our, our, our traffic and transit problems. The idea that you solve traffic by putting more cars on the streets is just wishful thinking and, you know, geometrically illiterate. Uh, but, you know, it, it, substitute for that the details of any gig work platform that you're currently using. And you can see how you could replace all gig work with worker owned co ops that delivered more value to businesses that they served, to the uh, cu customers who use them, and to the workers who did the work. Yeah. I, I wonder what you think about reputation systems because i'm thinking about people rating each other on uber and things like this and it's getting me to think about reputation systems and social media and how we kind of have turned our relationships into a transactional um engagement as well right where it seems a lot of people i know are peers who are trying to become influencers so they can make money off other peers by selling them things that they don't want or need and it as I'm hearing you talk about the gig economy and how we're all working together, it's making me think about the ways we're not working together, the ways we're kind of exploiting one another. Do you think there's a way around that? Or is this kind of like human nature as we find ourselves with our backs against the wall in a sense? Well, look, I, I mean, reputation economies are replicate many of the problems of, of cash economies and then more so. So they, they are uh, by their nature unequal um and they create inequality and they do that because um reputation is is uh interpreted through a social prism so if i do a thing if i'm held in high esteem and i do a thing that is uh of, of dubious value people will give me the benefit of the doubt right? like when when someone when someone you admire makes an off-color joke or gives a bad speech or whatever you're like oh that's just them it's okay right Whereas if someone you disfavored commits the same blunder, uh, you are inclined to give them less benefit of the doubt and to, to punish them more heavily. And so you have a situation very quickly in a reputation economy, the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. And it doesn't really have any relationship to any virtue or um, any kind of uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, empirical value that they create or deliver. It's just it's just this purely subjective self-reinforcing form of uh, weak signal amplification. And then, you know, reputation makes a terrible currency for the many of the reasons that blockchain does. It's not a store of value, it's not a medium of exchange. Um, you know, it's it's it, it it plays a social role and if you read uh, economists like Ostrom, Eleanor Ostrom is another Nobel winner who wrote about the commons uh that you know reputation is important to commons management but it's it's not reputation that is um kind of managed by a a, a numerical score instead it's this like socially constructed collective form of reputation that's always being contested and debated and and reinterpreted and you know it's messy uh and it doesn't lend itself well to being quantified uh but that doesn't make it um not true and it doesn't make it not useful it just makes it not readily computable yeah one thing that i think a lot about in relation to reputation systems is the idea of like a digital id something like a digital social security number and at times i think this would be helpful in eliminating bad actors and um you know bots and 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 maybe would bring back this sense of um one needs to act with integrity in the digital space because their their effects will uh, be remembered but then there's a massive issue a lot of people have with that obviously from a place of surveillance and censorship and and fear of not being able to have whistleblowers and things like that what do you think the space is right now in terms of um unique digital ids do you think that's something that would be beneficial do you think that would be 
taking us down a bad path. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm not a fan. And I think that just the underlying premise, if the, if the reason you want a digital ID is because people will behave better when we know who they are, then you have to understand that um, in a world in which we had mandatory digital IDs, uh, Steve Bannon would not change, but Me Too would go away. Mm. And so it's very hard to argue that you end up with a better social world in, in, in that world. Very fair. And what about as we look forward with the... Um with things like the metaverse and VR, how do you think that's going to impact us as we move forward? Obviously with Facebook's change to meta and all their efforts pushing us towards VR, uh, is this well, kind of like an escapist direction? Is this a good step? I mean, I think it's escapist for Zuck. I think he's just like, let me jingle some shiny keys and see if I can distract you. Uh, there's, there's such a, 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 a sweaty kind of, Hey, fellow kids character to, the guy who, you know, is the unelected social media czar of 3 billion people's lives, who's discovered that, you know, no one under 30 likes him or his products, just going like, I, I know what the kids will like, I know how I can, you know, capture the next generation. Um, and I'm, I'm skeptical. And I think that, you know, as a science fiction writer, I, I find it genuinely weird that Mark Zuckerberg hasn't realized that the, um, the, the guy who runs the metaverse in the novel the metaverse is from, which is uh, Snow Crash, is the villain of the novel and yeah. brings the human race to the brink of extinction before he is horribly killed. Like the it just it just strikes me like as you know, it, it, if Mark Zuckerberg were to reveal that the entire thing was a piece of performance art at this point, it wouldn't be surprising to me because it's otherwise so inexplicable. Well, then looking forward, giving all of these things we talked about, blockchain, VR, uh, changing the economy, all kinds of co-ops, different ways to do all of this stuff. Is there anything that you're most concerned about or most worried about, be it uh, or, or most excited about like a solution in relation to society or tech or any of these things? Yeah, I mean, the thing that I'm really excited about is interoperability in all its forms, Um uh, both uh, adversarial, where like hackers are allowed to make new things that plug into old things without their permission. So, you know, um, maybe third party clients for Facebook that allow you to log into your Facebook account without being surveilled by Facebook. So you can use a, another service maybe that aggregates with Twitter or that, you know, you run yourself where you have your own moderation rules and your own ban hammer and, you know, your own community standards um, or, or mandated uh, interoperability with things like um, the Access Act that's working its way through Congress right now, where uh, companies like Facebook and Google and Apple might be forced to allow new entrants to plug in under various circumstances. And and both of those, I think, are a really exciting idea, because while we hear a lot about how tech companies got big due to their network effects, you know, so you joined Facebook because your friends were on Facebook, the next person who joins Facebook goes on because you're on Facebook. And, um, you know, the, the, uh, uh, that's true, right? That, that is how these companies get big, but it's not really how they stay big. Um, you know, we've had companies that have enjoyed network effects since the year dot, uh, you know, everyone who bought an Apple II plus bought one because there were programs for it. Everyone who made a program for the Apple II plus bought, did so because there were owners of them. Um, you know, that is the network effect in, in play, but they were leaky buckets. Um, you know, the, the, the power of the, the um, network effect was always uh, limited by the fact that users could leave, that the switching costs were low. They could take their programs, they could take their data, they could take their communities and go off the network and go to, go to a rival. And what's happened is not that firms have figured out how to get more out of their network effects. It's, how, it's that they figured out how to raise the switching costs. So you still have users pouring in thanks to network effects, but you don't have any escaping due to uh, low switching costs. And what interoperability does is it lowers the switching costs. You know, if you can leave Facebook without leaving behind your Facebook friends, why would you stay? Right. And if the only way you can leave Facebook is to solve the collective action problem of convincing everyone that you want to talk to that you should all leave Facebook like next Wednesday at 1 p.m. and join some diaspora instance, you're never going to leave. And so you know, this is how we let tinkerers and hackers and computer users, new market entrants, startups, cooperatives, 
nonprofits. This is how we give them all the space to operate in the digital world. This is how we reverse the course that has turned the web into five giant websites filled with screenshots of text from the other four, to quote Tom Eastman, um, and, and, and how we get back to a world where like technology is really exciting, where new stuff happens all the time. And where, you know, if the technology that you're um, interested in, that, that you want to use isn't around, you just kind of wait a while and maybe something new will come up. Where it's not like, um, you know, Lego where you've glued the bricks down. It's more like a snow globe where every once in a while someone picks it up and gives it all a shake and out goes Alta Vista and in comes Google. Um, that would be a, a much better technological world to live in. Well, and on that optimistic note, I want to make sure that I respect the time that we set aside here. So uh, before we go, of course, I want to uh, open up the stage for you to talk about anything that maybe you want to tell people about. I know you have a tax surface from 2020, but is there other stuff that you want to direct people towards in terms of books or new work or projects that you're working on? Oh, there's so much going on right now. I, you know, obviously, I continue to work with the Electronic Frontier Foundation and uh, continue to develop my series on uh, on adversarial interoperability and posts about about economics and competition for for EFF's Deep Links blog. And there's my daily blog, Pluralistic. In terms of books, you know, as you say, uh, Attack Surface, the Third Little Brother book, just came out in paperback. Came out in hardcover last year. Uh, there's my picture book, uh, Posey the Monster Slayer, about a little girl who's kind of a maker kid who um, relishes the thought of tearing apart her toys every night and repurposing them as field expedient monster hunting weapons and whose parents just want her to let let them get some sleep. Uh, there's a, a pamphlet I wrote, and it's kind of a short book called How to Destroy Surveillance Capitalism. It's an anti-competitive or anti-monopoly, rather, critique of the surveillance capitalism hypothesis. And then coming out, you know, in 2022, uh, Rebecca Giblin and I have a book called The Shakedown, that's about uh, creative labor markets and how it is that the fortunes of uh, artists of all kinds have dropped off a cliff over the last 40 years and, and why that's not about file sharing and, uh, uh, and, and really is about um, monopolies and the ability to shift value from labor to the capital side or the distributor side. Uh, I have four novels coming out in the coming years. So um, in early 23, I've got... Uh, a book called Red Team Blues, that's a cryptocurrency heist novel, uh, noir kind of novel. And then at the end of 23, I've got that novel, um, The Lost Cause, about, about um, truth and reconciliation after a great Green New Deal transition. And then there's two more of those novels based on the Red Team Blues uh, world. Uh, the first one is a throwback novel about the heroic era of the PC set in San Francisco in the 1980s during the first PC boom about uh, scammers and grifters who run pyramid schemes that exploit faith groups, uh, revolves around a scammy computer company called the Three Wise Men that's run by a Mormon bishop, a Catholic priest, and an Orthodox rabbi. Uh, and, um, and then uh, another one of those novels in that series, which will be about prison tech and about the, uh, the exploiters who do uh, things like JPay, where they sell you a postage stamp to send email to people on the outside when you're a prisoner which is as weird and stupid as it sounds and as exploitative as you may think it is. Man, uh, your your prolific nature is very impressive, Corey. And uh, amongst all of that, then I want to thank you for taking the time uh, to, to have this chat with me. So thank you. I do appreciate it a lot. Well, it was my pleasure. Thank you. <laughs>